0: I'm Eli Castroneves, and you need more Front Wing. Hello and welcome to another more Front Wing podcast. I'm Steph Wallcraft, joined by my co-editor Paul Dalby, as tends to be the case. And uh, we have all kinds of months of May to talk about, very exciting stuff. We want to apologize for not getting you another podcast sooner than this. We honestly did try. It just really didn't work out. I was in a hotel room last week in, in Indianapolis on Wednesday night, and we tried to do it, and the Wi-Fi was just too spotty. Paul tried about six different ways to <laughs> get it to connect, and it wouldn't, it wasn't working. So we just ended up having to let the whole idea go. But here we are back again, and we've got some, lots of um, really exciting stuff for you. We had a chat. Well, uh, Paul had a chat with Pippa Mann. Maybe you want to tell us a little bit about what's coming up in that interview, Paul?
1: Well, we had a great chance to talk to Pippa get up to date with her Indy 5 100 program and get a little bit of background on how the whole race with Pippa and the Susan G. Komen Foundation all came together and and really what led them to the program that they're they're running this month at at, at Indianapolis
0: Great. Well, we're going to get to that a little bit later on, but uh, as we do have a tendency to do things in chronological order, let's first cover off the Grand Prix of Indianapolis. Now, I'm going to be very upfront about this and say that I missed a good portion of this this race, um, just because being from the the Toronto area and um, having some uh, some jobs to do for the Toronto media, of course, that big incident partway through the race with James Hinchcliffe uh, sort of pulled me away from my more front wing duties and uh, had me focusing on that for a good long time. And then the second that I got back from indianapolis i was um, i was off to another event for that same media outlet and so i haven't actually had a chance to watch this race all the way through yet unfortunately paul have you managed to to catch the whole thing i
1: did finally yes i okay. caught it a couple days later
0: so you can be the more informed of the two of us <laughs> as we, a- <laughs> as we walk our, talk our way through this um, i guess the natural place to start on this is with the start um, i can tell a very very personal and anecdotal story on this. I happened to be standing in pit lane while this whole thing happened. And uh, it gave me quite the, the very in my face perspective on exactly how dangerous the sport is. Not that I didn't know that or any of us don't know that, but um, what basically where Savager was when he started, when he rolled up and stalled, if you drew a straight line right across pit lane from where he stalled, that's where I was standing. And, You saw him stall, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one who just started thinking, oh, no. Oh, no, like looking for where I'm going to duck in case things start to go wrong, because that pit lane is actually not as wide as you think. So um, as soon as the uh, the first contact and then the second happened, there were there were parts flying and some of them made it probably about halfway across the pit lane and the uh, the brace didn't end up needing to be uh, quite as, as urgent as necessary on our side, although I hear that Mayor Ballard was injured and, and needed to be uh, looked after at the infield care center, so it's it's quite a big deal these things and uh, it's moments like that that bring the this sport and all that it entails back into perspective so um just just a little sort of personal perspective on exactly where i was when all that happened but uh paul you were at the other end of the course when that happened you probably didn't have much idea of what was going on did you well
1: we were on the turn seven mound at that point in time and, and there was a small monitor oh i don't know a few hundred yards away that we could see so we knew we knew there was an accident. We knew it was a big accident that that sent a lot of pieces flying, but it was it was quite difficult for us to tell really the magnitude of just how violent of an accident it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, it's it was amazing. Um, just to be from where I was standing, how many tiny tiny pieces of shrapnel basically were everywhere, and uh, it. It reminded me of why these things sometimes take such a long time to clean up because it it happened right over top of the yard of bricks mm-hmm. and it wouldn't take anything for a tiny little piece of carbon fiber to get in between the bricks in there and um, and get stuck in somebody's tire and give somebody a flat tire going a full full tilt down the, uh, the front straight at Indianapolis, which is the last thing you want. So, you know, of course, it took a long time to clean up. They had to get the sweepers out and everything. Um And, of course, these cars are intended to shatter when they get into an impact like that, as we know, because it's meant to diffuse um, energy getting to the driver and causing more injury to the driver, which is uh, demonstrative of the incredible safety leaps that this sport has made over the last few decades. So very grateful for all of that. But it does, of course, bring up the question of should IndyCar be doing standing starts at all? And I'm not sure that um, they may not have thoroughly thought this one through in terms of the fact that there there is no catch fence on the inside of pit lane and no way to really guard the people on pit lane should an incident like that happen to have gone much more wrong, and with the way that Elotion got in underneath Savedra, I I'm actually a bit surprised that you know, it could have gotten a lot worse than it did. So, um,
1: you know, I'm just surprised still that IndyCar and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway allowed that many people that close to the start. With no protection, basically to speak of, there was, mm-hmm. you know, you have that four to six foot no man's land with a four foot wall there. There's nothing, there's nothing to protect those people from shrapnel that's flying. And let's be honest, IndyCar doesn't have the best record of standing starts. Um, you know, I think back. I think was Houston was that where they had the the accident yeah. last year on the standing start. Uh, I don't know that they've pulled off a successful standing start. Where all the field has gotten away cleanly in any of the events they've done that. You go back to Toronto last year; they they had the aborted one, and then I think on Sunday, even they may have have had an issue then. Um, the right, but the, the, here's the
0: difference: in those other ones, it was guys who were toward the back who were stalling, and when you only have two or three rows of guys to get through to get around that that stalled car, it's not. Quite as difficult a situation when the pole sitter stalls the car, and I'm going to work really hard not to make any comments here about how many people had predicted that situation going into that race. I, mean, I will, apologies. yeah. I will. <laughs> but um, so when you, when you get into that situation where the entire field needs to blow past a stalled car. That's really difficult, and that that is what really caused the the biggest problem.
1: But even at Houston last year, what? I, I, and I'm drawing a blank on who? What was it? Hinch and Carpenter yes. that had the accident.
0: Yeah, but Hinch was about halfway through the field. Right, I but
1: I mean, still, you see halfway through the field, and it still had big impacts. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like a, a, you know, you're going into a slow speeds corner here, and you just knock a front wing off. I mean, it's it doesn't take long for these cars to get to a pretty good rate of speed. Uh, so whether you're going four rows or, in this case, 13 rows or 12 or whatever the, the actual number was, you know, you're still going to have a fairly violent impact. And, and to to have people that close, I mean, you have to plan for something like this. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we can point some fingers and kind of joke about it, but look who's on your front row. Sebastian Saavedra and Jack Hawksworth are not two of the more experienced people in this field. Uh, you just you have to assume that something can go wrong at any point, uh, and, and yeah, you wouldn't necessarily expect it on the front row. You'd l- expect it less if you have, you know, Scott Dixon and Tony Kanan up there or Elio or or, or some of that ilk. Uh, but especially when you have two of the lesser experienced people that are starting on the front row, well, you I, have to you assume know, I... something like that could happen.
0: Yeah, but you know what, you if you want to draw that bow, we had one of the most experienced drivers in the field, not in IndyCar specifically or with IndyCar standing starts, but in motorsport also stole the car on Montoya. That You're got right. a lot less attention mm-hmm. toward the back. But right. you know, if you want to point at a guy who should know how to get away on a standing start, it's Montoya. And this is a good segue into the, uh, the conversation that I had with Roger Pensky earlier this week. So um, let me just give you some background. When I got back from Indianapolis on Sunday, I, I spent the night at home on Sunday night. And then Monday morning, I was, um, I was flown down for a press event in Charlotte. And um, it was very NASCAR-centric, so there's not a whole lot for me to talk about relative to it relative to what we talk about here but um one of the things that we did as part of that event was have a tour of the penske racing shop and roger penske was there and it um, was very open and spending lots of time with the media and um he's ex- it just so open and so very proud of the work that he and his team do and very people-centric and all the things that you expect you could have eaten off the floor in this place it was amazing but anyway um as I said, Roger was walking around with members of the media and uh, and just sort of answering questions very casually. And I asked him, "Do you feel that uh, that IndyCar should be doing standing starts?" And you'll find this the story on more front wing if you want more detail of it. But his his response was essentially that the. Uh, and I did hear other people say this through the weekend as well, the first gear that they were using for this race, it was really beneficial um, through some of the corners in sort of the, the midfield. I think turn seven may have been the one specific that people were talking about to use a really long first gear. Um, and the result of that, that long first gear on the standing start was that you were essentially asking all these guys to start a car in a way that, if you're driving a passenger car if you ever if you've ever started um a manual transmission car try doing it from third gear and uh, and that just you have to catch the clutch exactly right and and throttle down exactly right to get the engine to actually catch and go and that's essentially what the entire field of uh, IndyCar car drivers was being asked to do and so um from there the implication was it was a little bit more than an implication that um, that IndyCar needs to look at regulating exactly how long a first year that the field can use for these races with standing starts. And I think that that makes a lot of sense, and it would be very interesting to see if that solves a lot of these problems.
1: You know, one thing I have never heard, though, and I've heard this of among a lot of people, and I've had this question for a number of years since they've talked about standing starts, what is the difference between sitting on the grid and having a standing start and these guys launching from their pit box? Uh, Why is it so much is having two guys pushing on the rear wing make that much difference is it a is it something mechanically that you that the clutch is warmed up when you're running a pit stop? You just don't see these guys stalling when you leave the pits like that. Why okay, is it so to... much more difficult getting off of the line?
0: Two comments on that. The, the pushing the guys is—that's not to be discounted. That that does make a bit of a difference. But um, first of all, don't discount the effect of adrenaline and pressure, because that that the pressure to perform in that precise moment and and the lead up to it and waiting for the lights and all that adds to the the um, the variables that the driver needs to work out while while trying to get the launch off perfectly. And the other thing that was interesting from my vantage point was um, watching which of the drivers um, took the time on the formation lap to slow down at their grid's positions and lay down some rubber before they took off again to come around to, fo- to form up for the grid. Um, I have to confess, I did not notice whether the two guys in the first row did did that so essentially what they do is they they come around on the front straight they slow down to pretty slow maybe um i i don't have a point of reference but and then once they get to their positions on the grid they spin the tires a bit to lay down some rubber so that they'll have better grip when they when they're ready to take off and then they take off again and um certainly i i started noticing it with the guys that were on row two And the first, the guys, most of the guys in the first few rows thought to do it. And then I think as it got further back, it seemed to be less common for for it to be something that the driver's caught on to. So um that is something to keep in mind as well is that you're asking guys to take off from, apart from that rubber that they lay down, essentially a clean track, especially right there. Uh and they don't have that to be up against in in pit lane. Um the conditions there are typically uh a little bit more grippy in terms of the number of times that they've been in and out of the box for throughout the course of a weekend and uh certainly if it hasn't poured rain. Um, which it did also that weekend. So uh, definitely a lot of things that that guys can be up against that can influence the standing starts in particular.
2: Okay.
1: You you talked about Roger Penske and and you segued that into Juan Montoya stalling. Maybe this is a good time to segue again into some of the the penalties that came down from post-race. We're going to skip ahead, I guess. Uh, Talk about some of the post-race penalties, Montoya specifically, Driving the Chevrolet, yet... You know,
0: I never actually had a chance to read the story, so I'm going to go find it and I'm going to read it right now because uh, well, set... to give well, some 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 perspective, we've got uh, well Chevrolet, Chevrolet
1: Chevrolet got a twenty thousand dollar fine and a ten point manufacturer's penalty for if you read between the lines, IndyCar
0: control is and control. Wow. Yeah, oh. Ind-
1: IndyCar is accusing them of some sort of launch control, traction control. Uh it it's a little bit vague as to what's going on and, and nobody seems to really have a even Marshall Pruitt hasn't put anything out yet as to really what the 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 uh what the mechanism was they were using.
0: And it doesn't but, say whether it's across the board or on it does not. specific cars. Nope,
1: no, it does hmm. not. So you have to wonder Well, Elio was also tagged for something as well, and I don't know if they're related or not, but Elio was specific, Elio's entry, I should say, not his entry. No, why don't you stop
0: talking and let me read it? Go ahead. Okay, so uh, IndyCar officials have fined engine manufacturer Chevrolet $20,000 and penalized 10 engine manufacturer's points for violation of rule 11.2 torque control and 12.1 traction control of the engine regulations. That's the one you just said. Second one is uh, find Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports $1,000 for a technical violation on the 77 entry. That was found to have violated rule 14.6.7.7, which is the underwing splitter. That's a pretty minor penalty, Um, and yes, it is on the winning car, but I don't think that that would have been something that would have – clearly IndyCar agrees that would have affected that car's ability to win the race, and so um, that's sort of a – not even a slap on the wrist. <laughs> uh, and the third one is Penske Racing $1000 for a technical violation on the number 3 and that was 14.15.7 differential assembly. That's a pretty minor one too. I don't I don't think that that's something that anybody would really be concerned about but certainly that that first one on chevrolet is a pretty big deal and i i would expect some more to come out on that in the next few days because uh that that there could be much more to that story
1: and chevrolet has already said they will appeal that decision so who knows Mm -hmm. this could start turning ugly again remember it was chevrolet at this time of the same year at the same time of the year two years ago when the whole turbo gate blew up uh and chevrolet did not uh I think it left a poor taste in their mouth. Let's say that uh, when they when when Honda was allowed to to reconfigure or re-engineer or use a different turbocharger at the time, so so Chevrolet may already be a little bit jaded, and if this goes against Chevrolet as well, you you have to think they're not going to be they'll be exponentially less pleased. I think having had this ruling go against them for a second time.
0: Well, then don't cheat, right? If that's what it is. And if it's not, then then the appeal will be over will will be successful, I would think.
1: If you're not cheating, you're not trying, isn't that the <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well fine, but if you if you get caught cheating and then you're gonna pack up your your ball and your bat and go home.
1: Well, oh, certainly. Right.
0: Then that's not okay. that's just not playing nicely. Right. So from that point on all I really know is that Simon Page no won and the point race is really tight now. Can you fill in the blanks for me? Was it good? Because right, when I well, was well, watching the Junior Formula races, it looked like it should have been a fantastic race because those, those little guys were doing a fantastic job and just putting on great shows. But the beginning <laughs> of the IndyCar race didn't seem that way.
1: Speaking of the little guys, have you seen the video that's going around YouTube and Facebook and a couple other places of the Pro Mazda race? where uh, Neil uh, Al-
0: Alberico, yeah, yes, I haven't seen that yet, but I've seen a lot. It of is
1: hysterically yeah. funny. They took the highlights, I think it was from, uh, from uh, Scott Harvey's car, I think.
0: Scott Hargrove,
1: yeah. Yeah, Scott Hargrove, sorry. Took the highlights from his car and overdubbed uh, images from Super Mario Kart, and it is hysterically <laughs> funny. If you get a chance to go see it, go see it. All right, back to the big cars. Um, what happened? Basically, Jack Hawksworth ran away with the first half of the race, dominated, looked unbelievably impressive. Uh, And then once the yellow came out um, mid-race, I think Dixon may have brought out one of the yellows, and then we got in a series of yellow flags, one right after the other. Somehow the Brian Herta Autosport got him off a pit strategy. Uh, I heard once upon a time that they had actually called him in at another time but they called him in too late, and then he missed the pit entrance. And that got him set off track, and he fell back into the bottom of the top ten and 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 never could get back on the pit sequence. So the, the race he, I don't want to say he should have won, but very possibly could have won, uh, he ended up with a, a seventh-place finish. Now, you uh, know,
0: that said, I did hear the team apologize to him for that after the end of the race. I had my scanner on while I was waiting around at the medical center, and I heard them say, Something to the effect of, we took that away from you. and We're yeah. sorry. Yeah, very sorry.
1: disappointing because yeah. he really could have won that race. Uh, and then the last half of the race really became a, a split pit strategy affair where you had Elio, who I think was on a three-stop three stop strategy, and he was just running full out the last uh, 10 or 15 laps. Uh, conversely, you had Simon Pagino and Ryan hunter Ray, who were on the two-stop strategy, and they were milking it for all it was worth uh, trying to get to the finish. Uh, and ahead of them was Oriol Servia, who I thought had pitted on the same lap as Pagino, but he must have pitted a lap or two before. He led very late into the race, ultimately had to pit with, I think, three or four laps to go. Oh. And then Pagino took over the lead, inherited the lead when, when uh, Servia pitted. Nobody knew for sure whether uh, Pagano or Ryan Hunter-Reay would be able to finish, and it turns out they both did by the slimmest of margins, and, and that's where we got our podium of Pagano, Hunter-Reay, and, uh, and, and uh, Castroneves.
0: Thank you for that excellent race wrap-up.
1: Yeah, there's the quick so version of it.
0: Did a bunch of guys run out of... Get out of fuel on the cool-down lap? Because I no. thought I heard somebody say that as well.
1: Well, Pagino made it back. The one that I, I thought I heard may have was Ryan hunter Ray. I never heard whether he actually did or not. Beyond those two, I think everyone else was pretty much on a three-stop strategy. I don't think there was anyone else super close that that was uh, in danger of making not making it to the finish.
0: So is it correct then that – my perception that there wasn't really as much passing on track as people were expecting.
1: No, unfortunately there really wasn't. Um, it, it, it did get a little bit processional. Um, that's yeah, a shame it, because compared- it looks
0: like it, uh, people were just, I took a, a pace car ride on Saturday morning with Andrews crone mm-hmm. And, um, that was, it was, he was hysterical. It was the most fun pace car ride I've ever had. <laughs> um, so, but he got in the car and said, I've, I've never driven this car before, and I've never driven this track before, so this is going to be great. <laughs> so anyway, he did the one lap, and uh, he did lose, he, he did overcook it just in a couple of spots, but nothing severe, and when, when he came around to finish the lap, he said, this track is freaking awesome, and was going on about how much passing there was going to be, just like everybody else, right? And as you drove the track, as I was in the car going around, you could see it, you could see what he was talking about, and exactly where the opportunities were, but it just never panned out, and I don't I don't know why. Does anybody know why? Have you heard anything?
1: No, I haven't. I don't know if it was, you know, there were a lot of people early on trying to make strategy. Uh, You know, we had the first half after the big accident to start. I think we went probably half the race under green flag. It wasn't until we got fairly far into it before we we had a, a yellow flag period, so I don't know if it just got kind of drawn out. Strung
0: out. Yeah, yeah
1: a little bit. Uh, there was passing for sure, especially I thought on the north end, actually, there was more passing than I was expecting, kind of there, the turn one and two. Um, not much on the far south end where you kind of came off with of the south shooting and back onto, I think that was turn 12, where you come back into the turn one of the oval. Uh, turn seven, there was some, some good passing there, uh, particularly in turn seven. Uh, unless you took the Martin Plowman approach and and kind of went helicoptering across the track, as he did to <laughs> uh, Frank Montagny. Um, right. But uh, yeah, I but, shouldn't be
0: laughing. That's actually quite. It was scarier than it sounds like.
1: Yeah, but you were
0: right there, weren't
2: you?
1: We or had, had you just left. Point? I was there with Jackson. Jackson had kind of gotten a little, uh, little antsy, I guess, sitting there on the mounds and, and kind of wanted to go walk around. So we had just left and, and had gotten over back to the Tower Terrace by the yard of bricks when that happened. Okay. Yeah. but as for why there wasn't as much passing I really don't know I, I think a lot of people were expecting it to be a little more action packed and it just, it just didn't pan out that way right
0: well one thing that did get to be action packed out of the result of it all was the points race which is now extremely tight going into the 500 and there's tons of points to be found throughout the two weekends of, uh, of the traditional month of May. So with Will Power just one point ahead now of Ryan Hunter-Reay and Simon Pagno five points behind. And those are three guys, you know, some people would argue maybe with the exception of, of Ryan Hunter-Reay that, that you don't look at as being the strongest contenders to, to do extremely well um, throughout the 500 weekend, although I'm sure many of us would be happy to see any of them prove that wrong. Um, Elio and Dixon... Are both tied forty, I think forty-one points behind Pagano, and those are the two that you might expect to see make leaps and bounds in the points race as we come through the uh, the next two weeks. So, a very interesting situation right now in the in the championship hunt, and will be uh, fascinating to see how that plays out.
1: But you know what a forty-point deficit means at this point. It's not quite a race. Absolutely nothing. At
0: this point in the season, absolutely nothing. Especially
1: when there's up to 145 points on the line in the next two weeks.
0: Yeah. Could be big swings coming. We'll see.
1: Big, big swings.
0: So before we move on from the Grand Prix of Indianapolis, let me just uh, quickly talk about all the things that happened in the Mazda Road to Indy because there was was some very interesting stuff. I think – with the exception of the fact that Scott Hargrove won both of the Pro Mazda races this weekend, every single race had a new winner for for each of its series this season. USF2000 had um, Will Owen, who I couldn't even tell you off the top of my head which team he drives for. Let me know, let me go look it up. I've got the stories up here now, um, and it's uh, I'm so I'm stalling because I can't find it. <laughs> Pabst racing. That's right. Huge victory for that team. Very small team in the, in the USF2000 world, uh, and it was another small team and uh, and lesser known driver. Although maybe maybe um, a little bit more common a name, given that he's had some more success in his early career. Adrian Starantino for J Motorsports. Two teams that certainly um, are not stalwarts in victory lane in the USF 2000 series. So uh, great to see both of them get rookie wins uh, out of that weekend. And um, what a way to do it at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, as I mentioned, Scott Hargrove has um, that massively closed up the points lead that Spencer Piggott had in Pro Mazda after he swept the first four races of the season and had a massive lead, but Scott won both of the races at IMS and uh, brought that championship to within five points. So That'll be interesting to see where that goes from there. And In Indy Lights, finally, Matthew Rabham has uh, has scored a victory, and I think a lot of people expected to see that happen a little bit earlier than it did, uh, but I think he's, he's finally starting to get the feel for this car and get things together the way he Likes and so I think everybody should probably uh, start looking in their mirrors because <laughs> uh, he's uh, he's going to get on a tear any time now. And uh, Louise Ruzia and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing his name correctly. I, there's a there's a lilt to it that I can't quite get. Um, his uh, he, uh, maybe not as well known name because he didn't come up through the Mazda Road to Indy ladder, but certainly he had had uh, quite a great deal of success in Europe. He's been a Formula One test driver and uh, he's he's very very talented and. Um, for those who've been watching, not all that surprising, but uh, certainly, I was um, happy to see him in uh, victory lane for the first time in Indy Lights this year for um, Schmidt Peterson Motorsports. And uh, I, I was remiss in not mentioning that uh, Matthew Rabin is driving for Andretti Autosport, of course, the, the junior of the UFD cars in, uh, in that stable for this year. So moving on, I think we are ready to start. Oh, before we talk about the month of May, let's talk. Let's tackle this um, topic that came up yesterday uh, on morefrontwing.com. Again, I mentioned that I was at this event with Ford down in uh, Charlotte this week, and it just so happened that they had brought some Ford executives down for this this uh, media event. And one of them was Edsel Ford II, who I um was seated with at dinner yesterday at uh at this event, and I just asked him in passing, the, in some of the circles I run in, there's a rumor going around that you guys are interested in going IndyCar racing, and he said, no, 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 and uh, he was quite emphatic in, in conveying that it's not uh, something that, that Ford it feels is in their best commercial interest. There's no one in the stands, he said, and um, he, I believe his exact words were, I'll be six feet under before Ford goes IndyCar racing again. Paul?
1: Yeah, well, it's disappointing. Um,
0: certainly puts all yeah, those rumors to rest. Yeah, there were, yeah,
1: there were you know, we, we've been talking about will Ford come back? Will they badge that Cosworth engine? I, I, yeah, I guess, I guess there's not much more else to say, but no, they are not coming back. Um, you know, we certainly hope that there is another manufacturer that's interested enough to, to maybe pick up that Cosworth engine. We've heard for a number of years that maybe, uh, some of the South Korean, uh, a Kia or a Hyundai may be interested. But as I just saw John Orvitz post, the, the Kia Cosworth just doesn't have that same rig as <laughs> Ford Cosworth did. And maybe that's just us being nostalgic and, and kind of wanting that that connection again. Um, do we need a Ford? It would certainly be nice. You 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 think the Ford-Chevrolet rivalry is is one that goes back so far. But things well, change, you know. Yeah, there's kind of right, no
0: point in dwelling on it because clearly it's not going to happen. Well, it's so. not
1: going to happen now, but who knows if, if, if five years from now things turn around and, and, you know, IndyCar starts to finally gain the traction that we all hope it does, maybe, uh, maybe Ford takes another look at it. And remember that that Ford has has accounts at at Penske because Penske drives their their. Uh, their, their NASCAR Sprint Cup Series, well, all their sprint, their NASCAR Series are Ford. Uh, Ganassi has a good relationship with them through their sports car program. So, you know, a lot of times if Roger Penske pushes something, Roger Penske gets what he wants. So could we see it down the road? Obviously what, what Edsel Ford has said now doesn't make it look that way, but... Things change. The, you know, maybe a, a new a new name comes in charge at at Ford, and and they're interested in the cars. So, we're not certainly going to see it for 15. Not going to see it for 16. But who knows? You never say never. Ever
0: the optimist you are, Paul. Although- I try. Having said that, Ford does have a new CEO coming in fairly shortly, Mark Fields. I don't know what his position is on motorsport and how much he would be influenced um, by the the current executives and their opinions. But uh, since you mentioned changes in in administration, that is on the on the horizon if you want to look at it that way. So
1: I try to be optimistic.
0: Yes, you are. You're a glass half full kind of guy.
1: The glass so is actually- twice as big as it needs to be, kind of. Guy.
2: <laughs>
0: Uh so let's talk about the month of May so far. Uh you're the month of May guy. What have you observed that stood out to you apart from the cold and the rain?
1: Well that that's pretty typical of May. Uh what have we seen so far this month? Well I, I Kurt think
0: Bush is fast.
1: That's where I was gonna start. Kurt Bush yeah. is fast, but again, has he really been tested? You know, it's hard to say. We, with this short week, it, it's really hard to uh, get a grip on what teams are handling or, or trying to work at. Now, Andretti has, for the last several years, <clears throat> excuse me, as they've gone to this this four car super team, I guess you'd say, or five car in some instances, they have a habit of, of running a lot of early and midweek uh, race trim stuff where they put all five cars out together. So it, I don't want to say it's easy to go fast but but your your speeds may be artificially high they're probably still running fairly high downforce what happens when when they start to to trim those cars out and they get a little bit more unstable and then we'll see if if Kurt can can keep up but all indications that we've seen so far are that Kurt is adapting extremely well to this uh, in a practice situation now, when we get to a race situation, and, and driver after driver have said this, it's not difficult to go out there and run fast by yourself. When you get out there with 32 other cars, it's a different ball game. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. He's still going to be a rookie when it comes to, to, to race day, and he'll be a rookie with zero IndyCar experience on race day, or open-wheel experience, if you will, for that matter. Um, but certainly I've been impressed watching him this week and, and what he's been able to do and the speed he's been able to attain thus far in practice.
0: Well, I'll tell you one thing. I had the good fortune of sitting in on a press conference with Michael Andretti during the Grand Prix of Indianapolis weekend, and naturally the topic of Kurt Busch came up. And Michael is fully supportive and, and fully confident in Kurt's abilities and paid him for thinking that he was worthy of a top five. Didn't come right out and say he was going to win the thing, but certainly was of the opinion that, that um, of a high finish would not be in his opinion outside the realm of possibility and uh, he appears to have been correct in his assessment that he felt that kurt was going to be very quick to get up to speed so
1: i think a lot um, of chips would have to fall his way to get a top five to be honest nah.
0: well a lot of chips would have to follow anybody's way to get a top five, Oh, yeah okay i'll give you that race yeah. at, uh, at the brickyard but uh-huh. we are starting to have to get into the the um sort of side conversation about what does it mean for IndyCar if Kurt Bush walks in and wins the Indianapolis 500 out from other under the rest of the field. And what, what perception does that bring to the series? Because um, if it could, uh, could go either way.
1: Yeah, certainly if he wins it, 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 it's a black eye toward IndyCar. There's no doubt about that. Uh, yeah. You're going to get some nice exposure from it, but, but yeah, th- that's not a situation. You don't want him winning this race. Um, my my dream situation would be that he has so much fun in it and he's so miserable tooling around whatever awful season he's having in Sprint Cup this season. that he says, "Hey, maybe I want to give this a little bit more of an effort." He <laughs> actually wants to behind the wheel. I don't think his wheel. bank account
0: is likely to think that.
1: Well, maybe not, but I think his bank account's fairly padded at this point. Maybe he just gets to the point he decides he wants to do what he wants to do. Um, you know, again, my ideal world. Uh, but yeah, I. I for the Indianapolis 500, it would be good to see Kurt Busch win. For IndyCar, I think it would be disastrous.
0: Yeah. Well, another standout point so far of the uh, the month of May is uh, Pippa Mann has been out turning laps, of course. And Paul, do you want to get us uh, primed for your interview with Pippa that you had?
1: Well, she's uh, out with Dale Coyne again this year in the uh, in the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation. Uh, machine, And we had a chance to talk earlier this week about how that project all came together, what her goals for that program are, and and really what she's hoping to get out of it and, and, and how we can help her do that. Fantastic. Let's hear from Pippa Mann right now. Welcome back to the More Front Wing podcast. We are excited once again to be joined by a good friend of More Front Wing, Pippa Mann. Pippa, of course, is driving the number 63 Susan G. Komen Foundation Honda for Dale Coyne Racing again this year. Pippa, a little bit different program this year than what you've traditionally done in the past. Why don't you uh, start us off with the basic for those of us that have been living under a rock and and maybe haven't heard exactly what's going on with your car this year.
2: Yeah, it's a very cool program, and it's a little bit different from the normal. So for those of you who haven't heard, as Paul said, this year for the Indy 500, and we started work on this early this year, we were able to partner with Susan G. Komen for a campaign to raise both, awareness and funding out here at Indianapolis Motor Speedway at the Indy 500. To raise awareness, it's not just the racing car that's being turned pink. It's my driver polos. It's the fleece I'm wearing over my driver polos. It's my driver's suit. It's my traditional red and yellow driver's helmet. That's no longer red and yellow, that's pink and yellow this year. My entire website and my logo that has always been red and yellow, we're turning that pink too. Even little Pippa has a pink uniform. (laughs) My crew guys are going to be expected to wear pink when they go out there on qualifying weekend, carb day, and race day. And I even have a pair of pink sunglasses. So we're turning literally everything pink, and the campaign hashtag is Pippa Goes Pink. The reason we're turning it all pink is part of the awareness. We want people to think about it and to raise awareness for Susan G. Komen, and breast cancer. And then there's the funding side of this. We've set up a pledge site at racewithpipper.com where all the proceeds go directly back to fund Susan G. Komen's work. And people can pledge there almost the same way as you would pledge against a marathon runner or someone walking a Susan G. Komen Race for the Cure event. Instead, this time you're pledging against a race car and the amount of laps you think it's going to turn throughout the month of May. Originally, we wanted to set this up so that people could pledge, you know, against every single lap the car would turn, literally. But uh, the, the lawyers didn't like that so much because they said, "What if somebody doesn't know racing and you know pledges a dollar a lap, and you turn 200 plus laps in testing plus the 200 in the in the race, and somebody's hit with a bill for $400? And you know that might not work so well." Good we for said,
1: the foundation then.
2: <laughs> well, it's not because then they'd get kickback of people who were upset that they'd been pulled so much. So what we did is we turned it into lap pledge bundles where people can pledge against 50 laps, 100 laps, 200 laps, which is a race distance, or 400 laps, which is effectively 200 laps of testing and 200 laps in the race. And they can pledge any amount from a dollar down to one cent to as high as they want. So it's a completely customizable amount, and it's a one-time amount, and that made the lawyers much happier, and it makes a lot more sense to people who don't know racing as well.
1: So, so you mentioned uh, that this has been in the works for several months. How did you actually get started with Susan G. Coleman and how did you bring them to to Dale Coin, or how did the the whole program kind of come together?
2: That's a really great great question. This actually started with an invitation to the pink tie ball here in Indianapolis and Coleman, Indy, and the idea of turning my race helmet pink, my traditional red and yellow race helmet, turning that pink and running the Susan G. Komen running ribbon on top of it, then donating it to Komen Indy after the race for them to auction off in one of their silent auctions to raise proceeds. That's how this whole thing started. And from there, this program just kind of grew and grew and grew. And we took it to their headquarters in Dallas, and now we have everything pink, including an entire pink cup. But the thing with the helmet for me was kind of special because It's been over 10 years since I've changed my helmet color, and I haven't changed my helmet design in that time really either. So I had to find a really good reason to make me want to go do that. And, you know, in Susan G. Komen and Breast Cancer Awareness, I found myself that reason.
1: Now, it's not the first time IndyCar has supported the the Breast Cancer Research Funds. I can remember several years ago, maybe 2009, 2010, when IndyCar raced at, at Homestead, They did a very similar, and and Sarah Fisher's group has been very active over the years in 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 running pink paint schemes. And I I believe you actually borrowed her uh, tow wheels and 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 tires this month to run. Even those are pink now, and running through the garage, are they not?
2: (laughs) Yes, and that was really really cool of Sarah Fisher and Sarah Fisher Hartman Racing. Sarah got in touch with me via text message. The evening of our announcement and said to me, hey, you know, did you want to borrow our tow wheels? We still have them all mounted up from Homestead, Miami Speedway in 2009. And I said, absolutely. And as I think most people know, Sarah was someone whom I really have always looked up to. She was, I'm going to rewind a little bit. When I was much younger, living abroad racing go-karts, my dad sent me a British racing magazine And the reason he sent it to me is there was an article talking about Sarah Fisher's recent pole position and second place at Kentucky Speedway in IndyCar. And I'd never heard of another female driver doing that well in open wheel before, so it really caught my attention. So when I moved to the U.S., one of the my first experiences in the U.S. at the end of that year that really stuck with me was seeing that, you know, they turned their entire team pink for Susan G. Komen, and it was exactly for Susan G. Komen. That's who their previous association was in IndyCar, and I thought it was such a cool program. However, as you know, Sarah is now a team owner as opposed to a driver, and while there have been pink sidewalls, firestones and things in the past couple of years, it's been a few years since we've seen a pink car for Susan G. Komen. Now, October is normally Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but we don't actually race in October. And the idea was, well, okay, so that's normally the month that they would do this in because it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but that's not our biggest stage as IndyCar. Our biggest stage is actually in May at the Indianapolis 500. That's the chance when we have the most possibility to connect with the most people out there for this cause. And so that was the idea that we really took to Dallas that we wanted them to get involved with. And... You know, at first they sort of talked about it because it, it, October, again, it, it is their big month and this is not October. But then once they saw how big the Indianapolis 500 is, this idea really started to pick up some steam.
1: Now, you've mentioned a couple of times you, you visited with them in Dallas. What other works are you doing with the foundation? Are you doing anything else uh, outside of Indianapolis directly with, uh, with any of their, their foundation?
2: Um, at the moment, to be honest with you, we've been so flat out pulling, uh, putting everything together to make this partnership happen and go ahead for this May as opposed to just in May 2015 that we haven't really expanded beyond this much yet. But with the pledge site at racewithpippa.com that's raising money directly back for them and with the various uh, survivor events and activities that we have going on, some of which are still in the planning stage, out here throughout the month of May at IMS where we're trying to get survivors involved in you know, various cool things that they wouldn't normally get to do through my program. It's a lot of fun. And I think later on in the year, as we get to that October time, I think that's when you might start to see more activation of this partnership, even though it doesn't directly involve me in a race car. One of the really big things about this partnership is that we don't intend this to be one and done. Sure, this might... Be and probably will be the only time you're going to see the pink Susan G. Komen Dale Coyne Racing IndyCar this year. However, we firmly intend for that car and this program to come back in 2015. And with the amount of time we've actually got to build up and to prepare and to work on the partnership together before 2015, when we come back for 2015, you know, we're already exploring the merchandising possibilities, what Susan G. Komen would like to do, what IndyCar would like to do with this. And we're thinking really big with this we're thinking you know not only pink shirts and caps, but we're also talking hopefully pink die casts, maybe pink little bell helmets, all of that kind of stuff so there's an awful lot that goes into this other than just putting a car on a racetrack
1: absolutely that's that's exciting that that there's already talk of two thousand fifteen. And and we certainly hope that pans out. Uh, Your your crew guys, you mentioned that they're going to be wearing the pink this weekend as well. (laughs) I can remember a number of years. It may have been 2009 as well when Alex Lloyd drove a a almost blindingly pink car. (laughs) And uh, I I remember some of his crew guys at the time. I believe that was for Newman Haas that he was running that with. I can remember some of them were a little, little iffy at first, but then they sort of liked the attention. How, how have your crew members uh, taken to, to wearing the pink this month?
2: Well, here's the thing, is that with Alex Lloyd's car, it was actually a very traditional sponsorship. It was an energy drink called Her. Right. However, with all of my crew guys, they get the reason why they're doing this. We're not just asking them to wear pink because it's a logo on the side of the car. We're asking them to wear pink because it means something. And they are all very, very much behind that. I mean, when you think about the statistics, one in eight women in the U.S. is going to be diagnosed with breast cancer. And when you start to, you know, myself personally, you look in your family and most of us have been touched and affected either through our families or through our friends. And, you know, for a lot of women, it's hit them personally because one in eight is such a big and scary number. And so to find someone who hasn't been affected by this is much much more difficult um you know it, it's and so everyone gets it they understand why they're being asked to wear pink and they're actually all looking forward to wearing pink because this time the pink really does mean something
1: well fantastic well i know there are a lot of people pulling for you from from just your, your everyday fan base, if you will, but certainly with the added exposure and the, the, the added cause that you're driving for, I know there are a lot of people really pulling for, for you and this program this month, and we certainly wish you all the very, very best. Um, again, tell us one more time how, <laughs> how, how uh, people can go about getting involved with the cause and donating to the program.
2: I was hoping you were going to throw that in again before I left because I was going to try and jump on you and do it myself. So, of course, with a nice (laughs) lead-in. If you could visit racewithpippa.com, that's the pledge site that's set up where all proceeds go directly to Susan G. Komen, and it's bundles of laps you can pledge against. So you can pledge against 50 laps, and you know we're already at 80 laps. So if you have pledged against 50 laps or you want to pledge against 50 laps, you know the car's already done that. You can pledge against 100 laps. That's a lap total we're closing in on fairly quickly. You can pledge against 200 laps or you can go the whole hog and pledge against 400 laps throughout the entire month. But we just want as many people as possible to A, go and visit that pledge site and B, even if they don't want to pledge themselves, they don't feel that, you know, they're in a position to share the website, tell people about it, tell them about our campaign and tell them why we're all out there in pink because the other side of this is the raising awareness side, and so we, we want to do both of those good things out there this May.
1: Well, we will certainly uh, post that link on our website as well as part of, as part of this podcast, and we'll, we'll be sure to push that through social media avenues. Pippa, I'm sure, is, is posting it very often. And through the month, <laughs> through the month you'll be updating on your, your uh, lap totals, I, I assume. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that is correct. At the moment, we're just over eighty laps, so we're closing in on a hundred um and so you know every wheel this pink race car turns out there means something, and that that that's kind of cool to be able to get behind.
1: Absolutely. It's a very cool cause, one that a lot of people are passionate to sport and one that we're happy to help out with and in any way we can. Pippa, thanks so much again. Always great to chat with you. And uh, we look forward to chatting with you throughout the month. And uh, best of luck getting into the race and into the 500 next week.
2: Thank you very much, Paul.
1: All right. Take care, Pippa. Great to speak with you.
0: Always great to hear from Pippa, and uh, she's always been very good to us about uh, letting us help her get her messages out, and so uh, very grateful to to hear from her and have her on the show once again, and uh, best of luck to her as the month of May continues. So uh, I think we can just go through sort of the community bulletin items before we call it a day. We've got a few of them. Next week, guess what? George Phillips of OilPressure.com is returning to the More Front Wing podcast to defend his title against Paul in Indy 500 Trivia. You gotta, you, you better brush up and do some studying, Paul. Cause it might you, be his
1: last time on the podcast. <laughs> if you lose to
0: George again, it's going to be a shame that you'll never live down. <laughs> Anyway, we need your help with this. So if, if you're hearing this, we're going to um, start a bigger push next week. But if you're hearing this right now and you want to jump in with your trivia questions, please send them to us. We're going to come up with some kind of prize. We haven't decided what it is yet, but the first person to stump one of our two. Um, can we call you experts? We'll call you experts. Why not? Um, with uh, with your trivia question regarding the Indianapolis 500, we'll we'll find something to send your way. So uh, send those to me directly, Steph S T E P H at morefrontwing dot com. Because you send if you send them to any other address, then Paul can cheat, and um, we'll start getting those lined up and uh, get that underway to get that podcast to you early next week to get everybody primed for the Indianapolis 500. Um, more events leading into the, the, the big race, of course, the Yellow Party is returning, and that will be on Thursday, May 22nd, at the Crane Bay in Indianapolis. It's the same deal as uh, the Yellow Party tends to be, raising money for uh, raising for cancer. The, um, the charity started by Ryan Hunter Ray after uh, his mom's passing uh, a couple of years ago and there's one other charity that's benefited from that as well and I'm just going to go find the name of it right now while I keep telling you about the event there's a silent auction a uh, a live auction um, live music by the band live, how many times can I use the word live in one <laughs> sentence and um, there, there are two levels of tickets actually, there's one that you can buy that is just the 7 o'clock to 10 o'clock reception and that gets you the concert search in the auction and some uh, and a, and bar, beer and wine and uh, hors d'oeuvres. And then there's another level up that you can buy that gives you one hour of a VIP reception with um, with the two drivers. Um, not I, It might be more than two, I don't know. But certainly Ryan Hunter-Ray and his lovely wife Becky are a big part of that. And then uh, I believe other drivers are slated to attend and that VIP reception as well. So um, depending on how much you want to invest, you uh, you can go for either level, and uh, either level of donations uh, would be welcome. Again, those charities are... Um the Racing for Cancer, and we have the Little Red Door Cancer Agency is another that's benefiting from this, as well as uh, it appears that the Indy Family Foundation, the uh, the Carpenter Families um, Charity that helps people in the motorsports community who find themselves in financial need due to hardship, and they will be uh, benefiting from this as well. So if you'd like to take part in that on the Thursday night before the 500, you can find all the details that you need at yellow theyellowparty.org. And one last point before we go. We want to tell you about John Lingle's book signings throughout the Indy 500 weekend. John, of course, is a great uh, contributor of ours at More Front Wing and uh, does some really great work. I'm still sort of, I've just started to dig into his book. I really wanted to, to get you and I, Paul, to do our uh, review of that early next week. And um, it's so far I'm thoroughly enjoying it. The amount of work and detail that John has put into this is staggering. And, um, the, the participation that he got from the motorsports community to fully tell, um, Lloyd Ruby's story is, is really excellent. So I'm, I'm enjoying getting into it so far and I can't wait to read more. John will be doing book signings. There's a reception at the IMS hall of fame museum on the Friday night of carb day. And that runs from 6:30 to nine 30 also involves, um, a book launch by uh, Jim McGee is written uh, Jim McGee, Crew Chief of Champions though he didn't write his own book, that one's by Gordon Kirby and uh, that one will be, Gordon will be there to sign copies of that as well at that reception and then John is also doing a signing at um, the memorabilia show on Saturday at the Speedway and that I believe begins at 2pm so uh, I my understanding is that John will have copies of the book available for purchase that he can sign on location there so if you haven't picked one up Yet, and you don't want to pay shipping, and you're going to be in town for Indie. Please do, do stop by. John would greatly appreciate your support as he continues to work on sales of that book, and uh, and uh, funding his work is a good idea.
1: And, and what time was that event?
0: The which one? The Saturday?
1: Yes, two,
0: 2 p.m. Okay. at the memorabilia show. Unless we hear differently, I and mean, if, that, if that if something changes, we'll certainly let you know on next week's show. But that that's my understanding at this point. So with all that covered, I think we're ready to call it a day, unless I've missed anything glaring, Paul.
1: I have nothing else to add.
0: Fantastic! Then let's wrap it up, and we'll be back next week to hear Paul get made a fool of by George Phillips again.
1: Wow! <laughs> Whose
0: side are you on? <laughs> oh come on! I gotta I gotta make it sound like it's exciting, or nobody will tune in.
1: I mean, George and I—I I don't know what could be more exciting. <laughs>
0: Anyway, please send your questions and, uh, and help us see who can reign supreme in the, uh, the Indianapolis 500 trivia um, for a second year in a row. And uh, in the meantime, if you need the IndyCar news and views, get a grip with more Front Wing.